A reading from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, and they said to him, Come and make gods for us, who will go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them and formed it into a mold and cast the image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. So they rose early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings, and they brought sacrifices of well-being. And then the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. And God said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them, and they have cast for themselves an image of a calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God said to Moses, I have seen these people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so my wrath can burn hot against them, and I can consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that God brought them out here to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And God changed God's mind about the disaster that God planned to bring on the people. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. The stories we tell as a community are vitally important. They shape our identity, they inform our ethics, and they form our imaginations for what our future can look like. Sacred stories have served this, this purpose for thousands of years, but something, though, in the last 200 years or so seems to have gone awry. In the inspired dance between our sacred texts and ourselves, you could think of it as a four-act performance. But something in the last couple of centuries has flattened it to one, maybe two. And you could hardly describe the relationship as a dance anymore as you could better describe it as an exchange between a shop owner and a consumer. My adolescent dance recitals would go something like this. Act one, take up your Bible or be seated in the pew. Take in the story, the letter, or the poem objectively as it is the word of God. 
Acts 2, if you get there, go and do what it said. Go emulate the hero, learn the lesson from the villain, go obey Paul's instruction, however strangely it may fall on modern minds. I would propose, however, that there should be a bit more depth, a bit more play in this rhythmic relationship between the people of God and the stories of their ancestors. And with our well-known and troubling story this morning, I'd like to try as best I can to name the acts of this divine mixed genre ballet as we ourselves get caught up into it. So, I'll begin with Act One, their world, or the world behind the story. It was Babylon, 2,600 years ago, and another long day of work had just come to a close. Israelites shuffled back to their ramshackle homes, carrying with them wages that they knew they would have to stretch to feed their families. They didn't dare remember the days only a few years prior when they seldom had to worry about where their next meal was coming from. They dared not remember being surrounded by the glorious walls of their city with a magnificent temple that their ancestors had built. They dared not spend time thinking about the day when they could gather at the end of the week and rest and hear stories about their superheroes and sing songs of praise to their good God. It was the end of the week now, and families prepared to make their way to meet together to hear a story and to sing to God, but their songs had turned into wails of lament. See, they had been defeated, destroyed, exiled. They had hung up their instruments for how could they sing God's song in a foreign land? The teacher the keeper of the stories, saw the people approach. And as they grew closer, he saw faces heavy with defeat. And again, he felt the weight of his vocational responsibility. It was his job to make meaning. The prophets, bless their hearts, they tried their best. And sure, the people heard their warnings. They saw their bizarre protest art. But privilege is blinding. The prophets had warned them over and over that their tribe had lost its integrity, that they were to be a people that represented God in the world. They existed to put hands and feet to God's love and God's justice. But time proved that they were far too easily pleased with comfort and with routine. They would stretch out on their couches, ignoring the reality that those couches were resting on the backs of the poor and the oppressed. They had forgotten that they were all once oppressed in Egypt. They had forgotten their common belovedness. The prophets warned them that the people's religion, their songs, and their stories, they had been emptied. Mindless repetition that made them feel satisfied, but having nothing to do anymore with the God who called them to mercy rather than ritual. The prophets called people out on worshiping not God, but the objects that were meant to point them to God, and that they were absurdly praising their own creation rather than remembering the living and uncontrollable force that had created them. 
The prophets warned them that if they did not stop acting out of fear, putting all their trust in military and wit, if they didn't start believing in the power of justice and the power of love, that they would be overcome. And that's what happened. And now everyone struggled to come to terms with the meaning of their suffering, to imagine some way, any way forward. And this is where the storyteller comes in. Stretching their imagination, their capacity for hope. It was on him to remind the people through his stories that God's justice is not about retribution. It's about restoration. It was on him to simultaneously call them to integrity while offering them grace. And so he set to work. He gathered everyone around. He led them in their songs of lament. He gave voice and melody to the pain of their existence. And when the howls died down, he assembled his cast of ancestors and superheroes and wove together a story. He drew in a deep breath of God's spirit and began what we now recognize as Act Two, the story itself. The people of God waited anxiously at the bottom of a mountain. They had seen Moses ascend, disappearing into the thick blackness of the foreboding smoke. They waited. Hours passed. They waited. Days passed. They went back to their work, still looking over their shoulders, waiting. Weeks passed. Daily rhythms resumed, though still uncomfortable. As they waited, they started to feel the absence of their leader. They started to feel their own vulnerability, and they became afraid. Fear grew. Forty days passed. Fear took over. They exchanged their integrity for survival. So the people gathered around Aaron, the brother of their late leader, and gave voice to their fear. This Moses that we once called our leader, he's been gone for 40 days. That's 40 days without leadership, without protection from the tribes that threaten us at every side, without a word from this invisible God that supposedly rescued us. Their fear was contagious and reasonable, and it quickly infected even Aaron. You are our best hope, they cried. We need a God with us to protect us, to go before us and show us what to do. Make us, make us something strong, something impressive, something we can believe in, something to make us great. And Aaron knew that they were right. He knew they needed something they could see, something they could touch, be inspired by. So he asked for all the gold that they had plundered from the Egyptians, and he cast them into a calf, a symbol of strength and fertility. This is Yahweh, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron announced this, holding the calf high. He had done it with the best of intentions, of course, but as they say, the road to Sheol is paved with good intentions. The crowd roared. Aaron felt the adrenaline, the confidence that comes with cheers, so he went on. Tomorrow will be a festival to God, he proclaimed. 
So all the people rose up early the next day to offer sacrifices to their golden god. They feasted, they celebrated, and their festival quickly transitioned into a tangled mess of licentious revelry. The people finally felt good about themselves. They had a leader, they had a god, and they were serving both, and they felt great about it. And isn't that what religion is all about? But meanwhile, up on the mountain, past the curtain of black smoke, the god they thought they were celebrating shook with anger. God spoke to Moses, who was alive and well. Go back to the camp immediately, God ordered. Your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have listened to fear. They have forgotten who they were meant to be. They have exchanged me for something they've created, something they get to control. In my name, they sacrifice without caring why, and they treat one another as objects for their own exploitation and indulgence. I cannot allow them to do such evil in the name of ultimate good. My people, Moses asked, jumping up and preparing to head back down to camp that I brought out of Egypt, aren't these your people? Not anymore, God said. They would say that they are. Turns out they want little to do with me. Leave me alone now so I can destroy them. If they're not representing me, then if they're not my hands and feet, a nation of priests showing all of humanity my love and my justice, then they have no purpose. So I'll start over. A new tribe from you, Moses. Moses dropped the staff that he had just picked up. No, he cried. Excuse me? asked the Almighty God. No, please, Moses implored, dropping to his knees. You saved these people. They escaped Egypt to follow you. If you consume them, how are you any better than the Pharaoh that oppressed and tried to wipe them out for so long? What you're proposing is, is evil, and you, God, are not evil. Repent. Change your mind. Don't do this. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, who dedicated themselves to you. You promised them, God, I have to believe that you are better than this. And there was a pause. A pause as thick and ominous as the smoke surrounding them. And God changed God's mind. In the place of the promise of destruction now stood a new promise. Hope and redemption. Well, the storyteller finished his tale, and he looked around at the eyes fixed on him. Eyes that burned now not only with conviction, but with hope. He held out his hands, his palms facing the crowd. So go, he blessed them. Remember who you are. Remember the purpose to which you have been called. And when you stray from that purpose, remember the chance you have to come back. So they dispersed. Some of the crowd forgot the stories in the weeks and the months ahead, but it still burned in the imaginations of many. They would go on to tell their children, and some down the road thought it was important enough, true enough, 
inspired enough to write down. People throughout the centuries resonated with its symbols, its characters, its conflicts, and its tensions. They saw themselves in the rebellious tribe, in the interceding leader, in the conflicted but hopeful God. They were implicated by the story, forgiven by the story. It would go on to be used and quoted by the prophet Nehemiah, the composer of a psalm, the community developer that wrote Acts and Paul's letters to the Corinthians and the Romans. They kept telling the story, they kept preaching the story, and they kept listening to the story on and on throughout history, which brings us to Act 3, our world, or the world in front of the story. We hear the story now with different ears than we brought to Act 1. Whereas they may have assumed a violent God, quick to judgment, we might take issue with this portrait. But as one teacher suggests, in this act, we have a responsibility not to read these stories acting, why did God do this? But rather, why did the storyteller say that God did this? What was he or she trying to tell us about God? And that is why we have to do the work of dancing before the first dancing through the first two acts before we can arrive at this one, the one in which we ask the question, is this still a story worth telling? It's always a temptation to say no. After all, crafting golden idols is no longer much of a fight in our churches. God sending disasters of judgment on our cities is not something I walk around worrying much about, though I suppose some do. It's tempting to toss this story out, to say that it's outdated, that the violence outweighs any good it could do. But our responsibility is to say, yes, this story is still worth telling. To recognize that surely there is something deep and true to our experience at work in this story, for it to have survived for so long, to have made it to our world. Could it still have something to say to our world, which one author describes as a world in which religion is therapy, doing whatever it takes to make people feel good and meeting our religious needs? Could it have something to say to our world in which we would far rather engage in fruitless acts of self-gratifying piety than follow the God of self-sacrificing love? A world where it's much easier to post something on social media than to have an actual humanizing conversation with a brother or sister. A world where we would rather send thoughts and prayers to victims of disasters than take concrete action and stand with the survivors. A world where we would rather go to a church and talk about love, reciting the right words about reconciliation than putting in the work of reconciling ourselves to estranged family or neighbors that look differently than we do. A world that would rather wear a golden cross around its neck than stick its neck out in the act of self-sacrificial love that that cross represents. A world that would rather act in fear and hoard up wealth rather than give it away to the immediate pain and suffering next door. Or a world that would rather act in fear and elect the most powerful looking or impressive leader than confront and question that fear itself, asking God to replace it with love. Yes, I think this story is about our world after all, just as it was a story about theirs. 
It hasn't changed that humanity faces the daily temptation to exchange integrity for survival. And that the people of God face the daily temptation to exchange fidelity and love for certainty and comfort. Our privilege still blinds us to the pain of the world. We may no longer fear, fear the fiery wrath of a deity or fear national exile, but the institutional church in our world is dying at a staggering rate. Across the Western world, we're finally closing our doors after so many years of failing to do what God has called us to do to be God's hands and feet in the world, a family of priests, instruments of God's love and justice. But as I said, the storyteller isn't crafting a story of indictment to inspire guilt. The story ends with grace and hope and invitation. This is a story that ends with a chance to make things right, which brings us to the most exciting and the most terrifying act of all of them. Act four, our new world, or the story that we tell now. But I can't preach this act because it's on you. This is a new act, one that makes many uncomfortable, so we bow out before it begins. This is an act of improvisation. The moves aren't in the script or the pre-recorded choreography. But this ballet lacks an ending which we must now go and provide. What will it look like for us to abandon the idols, to stop letting fear drive and to choose something real? What will it look like to choose fidelity to love over success and safety? Go and find out. Bring your stories back to the community. This act is yours.